Bill's knowing. All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is episode 472. It's me and Jason. And in a nutshell, this is basically about constellations. You know, like all things in our world, when you begin to take a careful look and take apart what we've been handed, you find nothing but problems and issues and misconceptions and a lot of times outright nonsense. Um, I'm actually reading a book, which is one of my favorites. David uh, Avocado Wolf sent it to me sometimes, some time ago. If you've ever heard anyone accuse someone of thinking in a Fortean way, this is the man they're referring to, Charles Fort. He uses logic like I do, just like a million times better than I ever could, much brighter than I will ever be. But the logic is... I mean, to call someone a Fortean thinker is ludicrous on the face of it, because what you're basically saying is your logic is so strong, I can't do anything but call you a name. And I'm not kidding. Uh, For those who are going to take an interest in what we do here, have an interest in space, what's called space in general, you might want to grab Charles Fort's book called New Lands. There are versions of the book that are like 1,200 pages long that include all his writings, but the one called New Lands zeroes in quite well, at least part of the time, on some of the things we're going to be addressing here. Anyhow, welcome, Jason. And a rather lovely good morning. Well, I can't complain. We have not been snowed on or frozen to death yet, (laughs) but February is in front of us. This is true, and I'm hoping it doesn't plummet. Clearly, it's global warming, clearly. Oh, of course. Um, anyhow, with my tongue in my cheek, I'll hand it over to you. A constellation is, of course, an area on the celestial sphere in which a group of visible stars form a perceived pattern or outline, typically representing an animal, mythological subject, or inanimate object. The origins of the earliest constellations most likely go back to pre-recorded history. Humans used these figures to relate stories of their beliefs experiences, creation, or mythology. Different cultures and countries adopted their own constellations, some of which lasted into the early 20th century before today's constellations were internationally recognized. The recognition of constellations has changed significantly over time. Many have changed their size or shape. Some were quite popular at one time, only to drop into obscurity later on. Some, of course, were limited to a single culture or nation. So as I'm getting ready to hopefully be able to shoot the sun at a very impressive level, because very few people are creating video of the sun, I resubscribed to Sky and Telescope magazine, which from my point of view is 90% nonsense. Ask Charles Fort why that's true. He'll tell you. Here's the thing. In the February edition of Sky and Telescope for 2023, They do a breakdown of the constellations, which is what spurred me uh, to get with Jason and create this. And though it is mainstreamy, they do a very good job of showing you how we got our constellations and that very few of them can even claim antiquity. The rub is the reason they're doing it. Part of the reason is so they can flip the middle finger at astrology because they're astronomers, right? And astronomers and astrologers don't talk. And to be clear, there was a time in our world when those two words meant the same thing. Go back to Tycho Brahe. He's as close to a hero as you're ever going to find for me. Actually, Charles Fort is as close to a hero as you're ever going to find for me. And in 
Tycho Brahe's day, if he said astronomy, he was saying astrology. And if he said astrology, he was saying astronomy. And he told the truth. And not only did he tell the truth, people took all the things that he placed in the sky so accurately, and people like Kepler turned it into nonsense, into theory, into mathematical equations that have no relationship to what's actually out there. Now, as we jump in, I will inform you we have 88 constellations. Less than half of them can claim any antiquity. And here's another odd thing. The Southern Hemisphere for a long time went without constellations, as far as I can tell, because everything was done from a northern climb. And so there must have been information. But how that area of the celestial fear gets filled in is really quite a story on its own. Lastly, the celestial, the celestial fear, sphere. How many people have seen them? It's like a little globe-looking thing where the constellations are on it. I suspect, and I don't know this for sure, that that celestial sphere came first and then morphed into putting a globe on every table. But that's just a supposition for now. An asterism is an observed pattern or group of stars in the sky. Asterisms can be any identified pattern or group of stars and therefore are a more general concept than the formally defined modern 88 constellations. Constellations are based on asterisms, but unlike asterisms, constellations outline and today completely divide the sky and all its celestial objects into regions around their central asterisms. All right, just to make the idea, so you would have, let's say, a constellation like Taurus, which is right there with the Pleiades. The Pleiades is not a constellation. It probably is defined as an asterism, just to give you the idea of the difference of the two. But here's the thing. Back in the day, when the original 48-ish, not even 100% sure, I think it's close to 48, it might be 46, because there are two in my mind that are still in question. Um, there were no boundaries. There were no formal boundaries to these constellations. As a matter of fact, some of the, the this constellation shared stars with the one adjacent to it. And when you begin to logically work out why that would be, um, it is my point of view that they knew all those luminaries are given off energies that affect our world one way or another. And so it was more important to actually look at what was there than it was to put a nice little neat boundary around them. And people like Athen Comente, who is a sidereal astrologer, come in and he says, well, when I look at the sky, I look at the size of the constellation. And the thing about that is what happened as we adopted in modern times, the 88 constellations that we have, along with that boundaries were put in place. And so let's ask a simple question. How can we think about the constellations like the Zodiac as being a clean 30 degree division of each? So they fit neatly into the circle when the constellations are clearly of different sizes, some of them three times the size of another these are the issues. And to me, all of this, the formalization of constellations, the formalization of boundaries is all a way to pull the minds away from what actually matters. From my point of view, what actually matters is we can look up, we see stars, luminaries, we know they're giving off energy. We know that the natural world is affected by the luminaries. They do certain things because of the luminaries. That's what's important. 
not what we call them, not how we divide them, not how we try to neatly jam them in a circle with arbitrary degrees of width. Well, it sounds like uh, sidereal astrology and the way you're looking at it is kind of how they might have done it a few thousand years ago. Well, it's, it's certainly. See, that's that's the thing. So I think it's important for all astrologers and astronomers, if I was going to have my way, which I know I won't, to get together and talk about things. And like the tropical ideas are pulled apparently from a couple thousand years ago-ish, a previous era. And yet, that's where we get most of our definitions of what this group of stars or constellations supposedly means important. But when we come up to the modern era, we can see that we've been mind-blended. Even the maps of the world show it with the equator and the two regions on either side of the equator. Those are still named from a couple thousand years ago. Capricorn, uh, the Tropic of Capricorn shouldn't be that anymore. It should be the Tropics of Gemini and the Tropics of Sagittarius. And that is based on if we go outside and we look up. So how is it that we're not actually going outside and looking up to see what is actually there and then working forward from what we've inherited? This is the big problem. In Works and Days, a poem of over 800 verses written by Hesiod around the 7th century BC, the many mentions to the constellations appear to be of a practical nature and had an agricultural interest. Hesiod's work is now widely regarded as the first ever farmer's almanac. It is also a guide to a modern understanding of ancient agriculture and its practices. Most of the poem offers practical advice for farmers based on the movement of the stars. This gives us a glimpse on the importance of astronomy in ancient Greece beyond religious purposes as the stars guided farmers on when to perform specific tasks. What more would anyone ever need to know in this world, whether they were a scientist or not a scientist? This is the proof. In the same way we can say, look, the Great Barrier Reef is the whole entire massive thing is spawning because of the sky clock. In the same way we could point to any number of animals that are responding, here it's being laid flat out for you that knowing the sky is critically important if you want to plant and be in step with the natural world. And this shows the overarching importance. And, you know, we've talked so much about the powers that be separating people from the natural world so that they can get them involved in civil or parallel kind of synthetic systems where they control what's going on because they can't control the sky. They can't control this creation. So it's one of the methods. But in this, we've been separated. What what if, as we go through what's happening in the world, there comes a time when you have to decide either I'm going to be part of civil systems and lose my freedoms and be bossed around like a slave, or I have to go back out and start taking care of myself. Well, if the latter is what you would opt for, you would have to begin to know these things to survive in groups of people that aren't just one or two. You would have to know when to plant, when to harvest. And what is it that does that for us? The sky clock does that for us. It's obvious on the face of it. Ptolemy, who was born circa 100 AD and died circa 170 AD, was an Egyptian astronomer, mathematician, and geographer of Greek descent who flourished in Alexandria, Egypt during the 2nd century AD. At the time, Egypt was part of the Roman Empire. In several fields, 
his writings represent the culminating achievement of Greco-Roman science, particularly his geocentric model of the universe that is now known as the Ptolemaic system. And places like the Vatican latched onto this, but here's the issue. We know there was a guy named Tycho Brahe. We know that Tycho Brahe went in and absolutely positioned the stars. There is nobody saying he didn't do it right. There is nobody claiming he was wrong. The reason for that is because his positioning of the stars was latched onto by Kepler, his little apprentice guy. And Kepler made up nonsense for the world to believe in. But it is known that what Brahe did was accurate. And if you read anything about Brahe, one of the things he's going to tell you is he was correcting Ptolemy's errors and all kinds of errors by these famous names. So it's one thing to have these people in history. And by the way, I've read a lot of things that say we don't even really know who Ptolemy was. That name rings a bell, right? There was a famous famous bunch of rulers with that last family name. But my point is, is even today, everyone's pointing back at Ptolemy and Tycho Brahe is almost ignored. And as far as I can tell, of all the people who had to do with the sky clock, Tycho Brahe was the most accurate. He told the truth and his truth was swept aside so that they could bring in, wait for it, Ptolemy's little geocentric ideas. Mainstream history says that virtually nothing is known about Ptolemy's life with the exception of what can be inferred from his writings. His first major astronomical work, called the Almagest, was completed around 150 AD and contains reports of astronomical observations that Ptolemy had made over the preceding quarter of a century. The size and content of his subsequent literary production suggests that he most likely lived until around 170 AD. All right, it's good to have a little history, but this is the same problem we always run into. So this guy's so important that all astronomy is going to say the name Ptolemy to this day. How is it that we don't know anything about him? How can that be? But setting all that aside, we know the writings exist wherever they came from. But once again, guess what? Tycho Brahe corrected a bunch of this. And by the way, here's where the rubber meets the road. Want to know why Tycho Brahe was swept aside? Because the earth stood fast. There's why Tycho got rubbed off the history map. He told the truth. And not only did he tell the truth, when he went in to place the stars, he did such an outstanding job that everyone that came later that wanted to reverse his idea that that there was no proof that the earth was anything but what the Bible said it was, standing fast, not moving, stationary, they used his data because he did the best job at it. But here's another thing. From my point of view, Brahe gave us the correct solar system model, or the most correct that I can find anywhere. And we didn't have anyone for centuries, I guess, that would touch Tycho because he said the Earth didn't spin. And everyone was going, oh, Earth spins around the sun, and you know the deal. But then we had a man named Steiner who very briefly gave a nod to talk Tycho and said, not only was he right, but here's what all us learned secret society guys know to be true. And he drew the solar system out and it's almost a one-to-one with Tycho Brahe. The reason I'm pointing all this out is because the very places who adopted the 88 constellations, adopted the boundaries, they're all about Ptolemy. They're all about Kepler. They're all about all these other people that Tycho Brahe showed was incorrect. Here's the main difference. 
Tycho Brahe was an observer. He did it by firsthand observation. Rest of these dudes were really good at math. And math has no bearing on what actually exists. Math is a description at best, just to make the point. Ptolemy's book that is now generally known as the Almagest, which comes from a hybrid of Arabic and Greek meaning the greatest, was called by Ptolemy the Mathematical Collection. Ptolemy believed that its subject, which was the motions of the heavenly bodies, could be explained in mathematical terms. The opening chapters present empirical arguments for the basic cosmological framework within which Ptolemy had worked. His argument was that the Earth is a stationary sphere at the center of a vastly larger celestial sphere that revolves at a perfectly uniform rate around the Earth, which carried with it the stars, the planets, the sun, and the moon, which caused their regular risings and settings. Through the course of a year, the sun slowly traces out a great circle that is known as the ecliptic against the rotation of the celestial sphere. The moon and planets similarly travel backward. Hence, the planets were also known as wandering stars against the fixed stars found in the ecliptic. The fundamental assumption of the Almagest is that the apparently irregular movements of the heavenly bodies are in reality combinations of regular, uniform, circular motions. All right, there's, so I misspoke earlier, as you can clear, see Ptolemy's actual description of the earth. But getting beyond that, he starts to go early about this is all mathematical. Well, this is the thing about the astronomy that we got handed from people like Kepler. So Kepler fixated on Jupiter and its moons. People were having trouble. They predicted and predicted where those moons were going to be, and they were regularly wrong. And people who actually observed things that a moon shouldn't be able to do at all were scrubbed. Some of them kicked out of the Royal Astronomy Clubs. All, all these things went on. But what Kepler did, according to Charles Fort, who I respect above most minds, is he decided that if those little moons he could see could be worked out as a ratio, then the rest of the so-called solar system would fit what he'd figured out there. It's unreal what's going on here because very little of it has to do with actual observation and has everything to do with math. And so, as you can see way back here in Ptolemy's book, wherever we got it, whoever wrote it, maybe a guy Ptolemy did, but I don't know that for sure. Um, he's already saying that this is all about the math. And I would ask, is it? Is it all about the math? Or is it all about observing? And maybe using math as a tool so you can know, well, this thing I'm looking at here today will probably be in this other place. And over time, refine that so your prediction is correct. And this is where it all kind of goes sideways. Consider the last big filming I did in August. I think it was August 2017 for the so-called full solar eclipse in a long time in North America. If what I claimed on the tail of the last eclipse there that I shot is true, then everything we know about astronomy falls apart. All of it. Orbital mechanics, the idea of gravitational calculus, all of it, all of it. And what did I do? I said that the moon plays no role in blocking the sun during a solar eclipse. Now, let's be fair. Is there a chance I'm wrong? There's always a chance you're wrong. I'm not a betting man, but I think I would probably take that bet. You cannot detect the moon. The moon is supposed to be backlit by the sun. How can that be? 
It's simple. I did it over tons of eclipses, not tons, as many as I could, never missed a one, and set out to do a simple thing. Film the moon coming to cover the sun while it's covering the sun or after it has covered the sun, and it can't be done. So I will put it on the table. If what I have deduced to the best of my ability is correct, everything we know about so-called space from the professional astronomy ideas falls to the ground instantly. But as we all know, there is a chance that I'm not right. But what I'm telling you is plenty of people could go out and test what I've said and try to see if there's anything to it. And while I'm at it, the ancient Vedic astronomers said exactly what I said, just at a higher level. Since you've brought up Charles Fort more than once, what model of the universe did he work from? What I love about Fort is he'll say things like I say, the supposed solar system. Like, you know, we've been told this thing, but where's the proof of it? Where's the proof that this thing you're laying on the table is actually observably, provably true? And so what I think he thinks is that the earth is stationary. Pretty sure about that one. What I think he thinks, and actually he does mention Brahe, and actually he mentions Brahe in a positive note. Most of the time Ford is writing, it's sarcastic at best. Like he's got his tongue in his cheek because he's being forced to talk about things he know are ridiculous, but they're accepted as true. So I think he accepts the earth is stationary and fixed, as is said in the Bible, as was said by Brahe, I think he suspects that everything we know about space is provably wrong. Actually, I don't suspect that. I know most of it from having read most of this book a second time. Uh, He just rips it apart with logic, and he zeroes in on what Kepler did with the planet Jupiter and its moon. He zeroes in on all the big names, Copernicus, and he just, he takes them logically apart. So the next time you hear someone being accused of Fordian thinking, shake that person's hand because basically what's just happened there is they've used logic that no one can contend with. How much of the Almagest is Ptolemy's original work is difficult to determine because almost all of the preceding technical astronomical literature is now lost to time. Ptolemy credited Hipparchus, who lived around the mid-2nd century BC, with the essential elements of his solar theory, as well as parts of his lunar theory, while denying that Hipparchus constructed planetary models. Ptolemy made only a few vague and disparaging remarks regarding theoretical work over the intervening three centuries, yet the study of the planets had undoubtedly made great strides during that much time. Ptolemy's conformity to factual data, especially as an observer of the sky clock, has been controversial since the time of the astronomer Tycho Brahe. Brahe pointed out that solar observations that Ptolemy claimed to have made in 141 are definitely not genuine, and there are strong arguments for doubting that Ptolemy independently observed the more than 1,000 stars listed in his star catalog. What is not disputed, however, is the mastery of mathematical analysis that Ptolemy exhibited and put into his works. All right, I'm going with Tycho Brahe every time. And so why are we still making such a big deal out of Ptolemy? I mean, in one way we have to, right? There's a historical early astronomer there, so it's a big deal. But I would point out in his time, astrology and astronomy were almost intricately tied. Certainly by the time Tycho came around in in the 1400s, it was still that way. But why are we doing this when Brahe came along and corrected and corrected? The reason we're doing this is because they don't like what Brahe said when he told the truth about the world being stationary. Now, here's the thing. 
Ptolemy is even saying, oh, you know, these guys are doing theoretical work, which is another way of saying, get your butt outside, look up and do firsthand observation. But it looks to me like what's going on is the idea of replacing observation with math seems to be taking root all the way back then. But sorry, Charlie, Mr. Tycho Brahe, who everybody accepts, was correct in the placement of everything he ever measured, even refined it, said 141 are definitely not genuine observations, and I'm doubting his thousand star listed catalog were independently observed. By the way, in Tycho's life, one of the things you'll read is, and I always remember this for obvious reasons, the 777 stars of Tycho Brahe. So that just gives a frame of someone working for a lifetime to play stars. And at one point, they're talking about 777 of them. Here, Ptolemy's trotting out a thousand. But I'll take Tycho's observation every time. He calls it all into doubt. Ptolemy was preeminently responsible for the geocentric cosmology that prevailed in both the Islamic world as well as medieval Europe. This was not due to the Almagest, but more to a later work known as Planetary Hypotheses. In this work, he proposed what is now called the Ptolemaic System, which is a unified system in which each heavenly body is attached to its own sphere and the set of spheres nested so that it extends without gaps from the Earth to the celestial sphere. The numerical tables in the Almagest, which enabled planetary positions and other celestial phenomena to be calculated for arbitrary dates, had a profound influence on medieval astronomy, in part through a separate, revised version of the tables that Ptolemy published known as Handy Tables. Ptolemy taught later astronomers how to use quantitative observations along with recorded dates to revise cosmological models. All right, there's a couple things here. What I'm not sure about, uh, I've read differing versions from Tycho Brahe's biographers that it seems like at one part he was considering the crystal spheres, which is kind of touched on here in the Ptolemaic work. But for them to claim that Ptolemy was preeminently responsible for the geocentric, in other words, he's saying it's a ball. He's saying, you know, all the things that I don't agree with, but he is saying correctly that things are centered on the earth. I don't know yet how they make the claim that he was responsible for that, because what I have seen is that that was pretty commonly held that the earth was a plane and the center of anything long before Ptolemy's time. But anyhow, let's keep moving, Jason. Ptolemy also attempted to place astrology on a sound basis known as astrological influences, later known as the Tetra Biblos for its four volumes. He believed that astrology was a legitimate, albeit inexact, science that describes the physical effects of the heavens on terrestrial life. Ptolemy accepted the basic validity of the traditional astrological doctrines, but he revised the details to reconcile the practice with an Aristotelian notion of nature, matter, and change. Of Ptolemy's writings, the Tetrabiblos is the most foreign to modern readers who do not accept astral prognostication and a cosmology driven by the interplay of basic qualities such as hot, cold, wet, and dry. So Ptolemy is saying he believed that astrology was legit, right? And I don't think you could find a culture in and around or preceding that that didn't accept that at some level. 
it feels to me like however we got these writings, they keep adding the doubt in. Like instead of Ptolemy simply saying, <clears throat> excuse me, this is legitimate, they've got to say things. But then he said it was inexact and all these other things. Well, here's what frustrates me about what we were allowed to get from Tycho Brahe. He was actually drawing astrological charts for kings and noblemen. And in the writings, they make it look like he didn't want to do it, that all these things, but at times they admit that there was no separating the idea of astrology and astronomy. And so all of this feels to me like an effort to defame the idea that astrology has any real measurable, usable effect in our world. And it is so far beyond logic. I'll ask everyone listening, have you ever experienced seasons in this world? Let me take it a step further. Would you bet a million dollars that next year there's going to be seasons too? And every year after that, what's doing it? The sky clock's doing it. And from that very overarching foundational truth, the more we zero in, we see that basically nature is being affected by what we call nature, part of which is the sky clock. There's really no denying it. That's the frustrating part, I guess. Ptolemy's catalog lists 1,022 stars in 1,028 entries. These objects are grouped into 48 constellations, which in turn are grouped into three main regions of the sky. These are as follows. Northern, or the 21 constellations north of the zodiacal ones. Zodiacal, or the 12 lying on the ecliptic circle. And Southern, or the 15 south of the zodiacal ones, but are still above the horizon as seen from the latitudes of classical antiquity. In contrast with modern constellations that are defined regions of the sky contained within given boundaries, Ptolemy's constellations are defined by the imaginary figures that conceptualize the star patterns. There's a little more to that, guys. Let's, let's open up a little bit. These were not just imaginary figures. They were personages, myths that had meaning. They told a story that helped you to comprehend what was going on with the energies in that part of the sky. But let's zero in on one of the big deals that I think very few people think about. All the way back in Ptolemy's time, supposedly, and I accept that it's probably correct, there were 48 constellations. We have 88 now. Do you get what I'm pointing at here? So 48 constellations, and even a couple of those been shuffled around, if I'm not mistaken, probably. One may have even been dropped. Only 48 of them have any claim to antiquity. That's a hell of a thing to consider. And then when you go about examining how supposedly it was viewed in that time, was there was no divisions, no boundaries. It's this part of the sky is attached to this story and this personage and this myth or whatever it was to help tell the tale of what we need to know about that sky, not we're building a rigid fence around them so we can put all these little ducks in one neat little bin, which is what we do now. And I think that's a really huge deal to consider. I think what it does is it pulls our mind into these well-boundary defined things as the issue at hand. It's not. It's just a label. That's all it is. It's a name. What really matters is the luminaries that are there. And for that matter, how they interact with the ones next to it on any given direction. I'm just saying it all feels to me like a way to obfuscate minds away from what actually matters into these neat little pictures that have a boundary that we can all admire. For each star entry, 
The catalog provides a brief textual description, the position of the object in ecliptic coordinates of longitude and latitude, and nearly always a value of magnitude or brightness. In the majority of cases, textual descriptions identify stars with respect to anatomical or, if inanimate, structural parts of the constellation figures. In other cases, identity is defined by the star's relation to previous entries. So here's another critical thing to think about. No matter how far you go back, usually there's magnitudes or brightness put on each little star or luminary. And while you can see why that would be important, what's happened now is we've been told that some of these stars are 100 gazillion light years away, and this is part of what Charles Fort takes apart. He, he states, logically, if a star was dimmer, you would consider it's probably further away. That's all out the window now. But if we think about magnitude or brightness, wouldn't we logically assume that if a thing was really bright, it was exerting more influence? Or maybe I could put that a better way, shedding more energy in some way? And if we look at the parts of the sky that the so-called masters of the universe are interested in, we'll come to things like the brightest star in the sky, Sirius, right? That's the brightest star by a long shot. Why is it so important? Well, it's one of the brightest, but in the same breath, we're going to be told that it's however far away it is. And these are some of the things that Charles Fort logically throws into question. He doesn't throw it into question. He just shows this is nonsense. How can we believe in things that can be logically put down? So the magnitude, it's gone on forever. And what would you assume the brightness or dimness of a star meant? Wouldn't that be the place to work from? The 48 traditional Western constellations are Greek. They are listed in Erotus' work Phenomena and Ptolemy's previously mentioned Almagest, though their origin most likely predates these works by at least several centuries. Constellations in the far southern sky were added from the 15th century until the mid-18th century when European explorers began traveling to the southern hemisphere. Twelve or possibly thirteen ancient constellations belong to the zodiac, which straddle the ecliptic along which the sun, the moon, and the planets all traverse. The origins of the zodiac remains historically uncertain. Its astrological divisions became prominent sometime around 400 BC in Babylonian or Chaldean astronomy. How can you say the last sentence and mean the one you said right before it? So you're telling me, oh, these divisions came from 400 BC, but it all remains pretty mystery. You know, it's a historical mystery. We're uncertain about it. I'm calling poppycock. I think there are good records in the world. It would not surprise me if they're in the basement of the Vatican, but I think there are very good records in the world about this. I think the importance of what we're talking about was never lost by the people at the top of their little pyramid, but constellations in the far southern sky were added from the 15th to the 18th century. And I'll invite you, go look. I mean, it gets to be ridiculous at some point. They're adding a constellation called the fly. Does a constellation called the fly feel like it's in the same spirit of the sense you get of things from the constellation named in the Zodiac? And then when we jump into the Zodiac and we begin to logically try to work, how do we get here? But it gets worse from the work we've done on calendars. We know there were 10 months and we know that the Romans jacked it up and we're reasonably sure they did it to create civil control systems. 
which means they added another two zodiacal signs. They added another two months. And these are the overarching problems that I'm urging people to look past. We have the sky. No one can change it. We can start to view it as there's a luminary. I see it. Now let's concentrate on how it might affect us. Or there's a group of luminaries and use the old zodiacal and use these things as guides, but don't get too married to these divisions and names and things. They have all been changed with very few exceptions. And I kid you not, look up the 88 constellations, look for the fly or the bee. I came across the fly in all of this research. It's crazy. Does, does a constellation, I mean, when we look up at the constellations, we have this sense of antiquity and hidden meaning and larger meanings and all this occulted information that seems like it's probably important. And then a dude puts a fly in the sky. Not only that, one of the constellations called Argos, which goes back to the very root of Greek myth, the ship Argos, Jason and the Argonauts. It was a huge constellation that went kind of from the north into the southern hemisphere. And even that got cropped apart. Maybe they needed to make room for the fly. The classical zodiac is a revision of Neo-Babylonian or Chaldean constellations ranging from the 6th century BC. The Greeks adopted the Babylonian constellations around the 4th century BC. 20 Ptolemaic constellations are from the ancient Near East, with another 10 having the same stars but with different names. There are multiple authors who have suggested various zodiacal ideas being mentioned in various books of the Bible. The term Maseroth, translated as a garland of crowns, and only being mentioned once in the entire Bible in Job 38.32, is suggested to refer to the zodiacal constellations. The most intelligent breakdowns of the word Maseroth from the book of Job is, I accept it means basically the zodiac, but there's more. You can go into the book of Job and, and he'll, they'll say things like, can you deny the sweet influences of the Pleiades? Well, I, I never knew the Pleiades were a sweet influence. I can bank that, right? From now on, whenever I see the Pleiades, I have a basis to consider that maybe those are beneficial energies that I'm getting from there. Then they'll go on to say, can you loose the belt of Orion? Clearly, this stuff was scrubbed and removed from some of the most important writings. But here's the thing. The Ptolemaic constellations are from the ancient Near East, they claim, with another 10 having the same stars but a different name. That's a big deal. Two different records of the same stars being grouped. We can work with that. Now we know that this individual grouping of stars, whatever it is, probably has an important reason to be grouped together. There's so much here that we could logically move forward with. But under it all, I think it comes down to observation now. We have to go out. We have to pay attention. Uh, people who are really bright could do things like Tycho Brahe talked about. He would write an astrology chart for some nobleman or a king. And then he would actually say, but we won't know if I'm right for another few months or something like that. Thing is, is why aren't we doing that? If we make astrological predictions, or why don't we do it in reverse? Like on this day, we know this really hell-bent thing happened. Let's go look at what was going on in the sky and start to reshape one-to-one. -one. We know this thing happened, and we can show this was the sky that it happened under, and then try to work out, did, did the real event happen in the sky three months earlier, or you see where I'm going here? I think that's really where this needs to go to get back 
unless we're fortunate enough to regain some of the records. But to be told that two different cultures group the same stars, to me, that's bank. As we touched on earlier, there's only a limited amount of information on ancient Greek constellations. Some fragmentary evidence can be found in the previously mentioned Works and Days by the Greek poet Hesiod. Greek astronomy possibly adopted the older Babylonian system in the Hellenistic era. If so, it would have been first introduced to Greece by Eudoxus of Cnidus, an ancient Greek astronomer in the 4th century BC, but this has never been conclusively proven. The original work of Eudoxus has been lost, but it is said to survive as a versification by Aratus, dating to the 3rd century BC. The basis of Western astronomy, as taught during late antiquity and until the early modern period, is, of course, the Almagest. All right, well, let's just see if we can all agree here. Way back in this remote antiquity, we can go out all over the world and find these monolithic rocks that nobody is quite sure how they moved them, how they shaped them, how they fit them together. Well, guess what they thought was important? The sky clock. What they're claiming is the Greeks got from the Babylonians, and the Babylonians probably got, you know, it's never been a time when it didn't matter, but we've been led to believe into the modern era, that those people were somehow less than us, right? Because evolution is true. Evolution is linear, which means the last generation will not be quite as evolved as the next generation. The ones that follow me, they'll be a little more evolved, but that's not what we've seen. We can demonstrate that devolution has been going on. We can't move those rocks. We can't do a lot of things from these eras. And so how is it that it is so easy to brush astrology aside, which was astronomy at the same time back in the day, and then try to make up some story about how things we couldn't possibly achieve were done. Let's recognize it. It's amazing. They moved rocks that we can't even fathom. They shaped them in a way we can't even fathom. And by the way, they were very interested in the sky clock. What more do we actually need to know to comprehend the importance of a thing? But you see, I'm, I'm being rhetorical here. From my money, that's exactly why we had those astronomical unions who came along and said, well, we'll keep these constellations. Those got to go. Oh, that fly. Yeah, that fly is a good one. We're going to put that in. And by the way, we got all these boundaries that we're going to arbitrarily make up to convince everyone that the sky is neatly 30 degrees by 30 degrees by 30 degrees in the zodiac. It's all obfuscation and it's all separation from the creator's creation to be clear. And for the last point for hour one, the sculptured Dendera Zodiac is an Egyptian bas-relief originating from the ceiling of the portico of a chapel that had been dedicated to Osiris in the Hathor Temple at Dendera. The sky disk is centered on the North Pole Star, with Ursa Minor depicted as a jackal. An inner disk is composed of constellations showing the signs of the Zodiac. Some of these are represented in the same Greco-Roman iconographic forms as their familiar counterparts, whilst others are shown in a more Egyptian form. This chapel was said to have been started in the late Ptolemaic period, which existed from 305 BC until 30 BC. The inner area of the Proneos was added by the emperor Tiberius. Mainstream historians have mentioned this as being the only complete map that is known of the ancient sky and has been conjectured to represent the basis on which later astronomy systems were based. 
I don't know, maybe it's the only one that wasn't hidden or easily shuffled into a basement somewhere. Who knows? But we're back to the same thing. Do we admire the Greeks? Do we admire some of the things the Egyptian did? Well, it's pretty clear they were big on the sky clock. It's pretty big. They understood things about it that we don't. But here's where we get into more nonsense. So they're claiming that the Dendara kind of sky map thing is centered on the North Pole. Well, there's a thing called precession of the equinoxes. If that was thousands of years ago, then the North Star should not be the North Star we see now, as in some thousand years from now, the North Star we look at should not be the North Star. And yet, here's another thing Charles Fort takes apart beautifully. For the past 2,000 years, those stars have not moved. And when Tycho Brahe came along to refine their placement, those stars have not moved. And yet, all our textbooks are still going to tell us that the procession is gradually knocking our North Star out of position. What I'm here to say is that I suspect it's all been purposely obfuscated so that we don't use one of the most important tools at our disposal, a tool so important that it used to educate everybody that it's time to plant your food. It's time to get ready for hard times. It's time to harvest your food. And by the way, with a specificity of knowing, it could have even been, look, something bad's probably about to happen here. We've lost all of that. And for my money, it's because people don't want you to have the tools that are our birthright. And in a time that we're facing like this time, it's not hard to imagine that to be true. We have the sky clock. No one can change the sky clock. For my money, I think we need to start to re-examine it using our own God-given abilities. There's a luminary. What does it mean? Let's look at the old records and use logic to bring forward what we can until maybe some fortunate day we get records that have been hidden away from us. But Jason, anything you want to add? So for our two, we're going to get into the uh, Middle Ages area and show how things kind of had a weird stalling for a few hundred years, but the monks kind of kept astronomy going, but kept a lot of things from classical antiquity until we get up to the time of Daiko Brahe and those astronomers, which led up into the explorers of the 17 and 1800s. All right. Well, that's going to be it for hour one of episode 472. And you know, if there ever comes a day when Tycho Brahe gets his due, you will absolutely honestly know mindsets are changing. I will never fathom how he was so easily swept away while they used every shred of data he ever produced to push the myth that is what we think space is today. With that, the first hour is free at crow777radio.com, C-R-R-O-W-777radio.com. Members know to log in for the full episode. I hope to see everybody over there, and I'd like to wish you all a happy new year and a happy, healthy, and higher-minded new era. Cheers.
is the enemy of knowing.